and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me as usual. Darcy, say hi to the fans and listeners hey, alike. What's the, the two The two fans and the <laughs> couple hundred listeners. So you're saying we have listeners and we have fans, and those are not necessarily overlapping. No. Got it. They're hostile listeners who are being forced to, to listen <laughs> super, to the show. <laughs> super aggressive. <laughs> Friends and family that must listen. <laughs> Just kidding. We well, hello to you to all, too. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we have for tonight's episode, Miss Darcy? We are going to talk about uh, a long, long, long cold case. And it actually was recently solved but everything I ever heard about this case it was one of it's a famous case everything I heard about it was uh, it was an abduction and it didn't ever seem like it was going to be solved so I just want to kind of talk about the case of Jacob Wetterling tonight and there are many 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 podcasts on this folks we do realize that but we are hoping that we can shed a little bit of a different light on it and sort of at the same time delve into the category of child abduction and talk about some of the facts surrounding it so that people can really be knowledgeable on this topic because it is a very pervasive problem here in the U.S. and around the world. So Mm -hmm. let's jump right in. And just to piggyback on what you said, Sarah, so there is a really, really, really wonderful podcast that did a series a season-long deep dive into this and it's called in the dark and i highly recommend wonderful podcast i highly recommend everybody check it out and it's really interesting because this the podcast was originally going to be just about the abduction and search for jacob and the work that patty has done as an advocate for missing children and then right before they went into production, like right before it was about to come out, there was an arrest in the case. And so they kind of changed the entire outlook of their show to talk about what happened and all of the 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 clues that were missed. And we're going to kind of get into that tonight. But if you really want a very incredibly well done deep dive into the story, I highly recommend checking out that podcast in the dark. So Now, In the Dark is a scripted podcast. It's not a sort of live fly-by-the-city-your-pants kind of a thing like our podcast. So it's a little bit different. And then at the same time, what I find particularly interesting about this as well is that it was a cold case that ended up getting solved in later years. And it seems as though we've got a lot of cases that are happening in that way. And it is very exciting that we are finding closure, that they're getting these people that are committing these crimes and you can't hide. It's only mm-hmm. a matter of time before somebody finds you, mm-hmm. especially with the, the growth in technology and the changes that we've had through the years. It is very exciting that we are now closing some of these significant cases that have just devastated people through the years and finally giving people closure on these. Yeah. And so but just before we get started here, just to acknowledge my sources, I pulled some of this general information from Wikipedia and People magazine actually did a story about it. I pulled their archives from the time of the abduction. And I also did pull some information from APM Reports, and that is the group that did In the Dark. And I pulled some information from the Brainer Dispatch and the Atlanta Journal Constitutional. Awesome. So a lot of sources on this one because there's a lot, there's a wealth of information. Alrighty, so Jacob Wetterling was born on February 17th, 1978 in St. Joseph, Minnesota. 
And St. Joseph is a really, really small town in the St. Cloud metropolitan area. And in 1980, the population was just under 3,000 people. So this seems like a really small Midwestern town where everyone knew everybody else. And it was kind of, you know, gives that feeling of nobody locked their doors. You know, kids could go anywhere at any time. You know, there was nothing really to worry about, right? I, I think part of what strikes me about this case and what just really gets at my heartstrings is that this kid is my age, mm-hmm. born at the same time as I was, same small town kind of vibe growing up. And it really is the end of innocence in the area when mm-hmm. something like this happens. And I can very, very easily imagine a crime like this happening in the same kind of a town that I grew up in, which was a small country town where no one locked their doors and mm-hmm. everyone thought it was safe to go play outside. Right. Well, and it and it was safe to play outside, you know, that what you didn't have to worry about anything. So on October 22nd, 1989, Jacob is 11 and he and his younger brother, Trevor, who was just a year younger than him and their friend, Aaron, who was 11, rode their bikes to a Tom Thumb convenience store to rent the movie The Naked Gun, because this was back when you could rent movies at a gas station. Right, and we're talking and that VHS. Movie is classic. Yes, yeah, it is. <laughs> so, according to Patty Wetterling, her Jacob's mother, she and her husband Jerry were at a party when the boys called a little after 9 p.m. to ask if they could ride the one-mile trip to the Tom Thumb to run a movie. Patty didn't want to let them do it, but Jerry told them that they could go so long as they wore reflective clothing. They carried a flashlight, and they stayed together the whole time. So Well, it's my understanding, too, that they called and asked the mom first, and she said absolutely right. not, and they waited and then called back yeah. and asked dad. So they kind of snuck around it, which in, in retrospect, I mean, kids do that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But that's got to be something that later on down the line, the mom is just uh, – the parents are probably devastated mm-hmm. because – one said no and the other one said yes. Right. And but it's not anyway. like and it's not like Patty said no out of any kind of foreknowledge or, you know, that the area was unsafe. She just said no because she was uncomfortable with it, which is typical for mothers. They tend to be a little bit more restrictive in terms of, you know, and things like that, just because they worry a little bit more. And then I think she was more concerned about them maybe getting hit by a car, mm-hmm. riding their bikes along the road in the dark, that sort of thing, sure. rather than them being abducted. Of course. Why, yeah. Why would you ever think like that you know and so that's why jerry said okay you can go as long as you're wearing reflective clothing and you carry a flashlight you know you stay together because that really did seem like the biggest concern is that they would just be hit by a car or something like that you know because it's nine it's nine o'clock it's dark you know so they were on their way back home when a masked man stopped them and we know this. Wait, did you say what time of the year this is? Was this October, fall, summer? Okay, so it's fall. Yeah. So it's just starting to get cold out, probably mm-hmm. in that area as well. And the days are getting shorter, too. So it gets dark earlier. So they're on their way back home from the convenience store when a masked man stops them, and he pulled out a gun and he ordered the boys to throw their bikes in a ditch and lie face down on the ground. After asking the boys their ages, he ordered Trevor, who was the youngest, into the nearby woods, and he threatened that if he turned around, he'd be shot. And this is really interesting because he, he, you know, this is information that we got from Trevor, but it, you know, clearly this man had some kind of lower age threshold, even though Trevor was just 10 and Jacob and Aaron were 11. He definitely had a preference, it seems to me. Right. It just, it's, it's peculiar because there's not 
that big of a difference between 10 and 11 super creepy to me that he would be that specific to be like okay you're too young even though there's only an a year or two difference between them exactly so after telling trevor to run into the woods he asked to see jacob and aaron's faces also creepy so the man then asked to see the faces of jacob and aaron and he grabbed jacob and told him to run again into the woods and not look back he told jacob or he told aaron he told aaron okay so trevor and aaron ran the remaining half mile back to the wetterling house and they had a neighbor who was babysitting the wetterling's youngest daughter carmen and the neighbor went to her house and her father called 911 and then he called the the party where the wetterling parents were to let them know what happened okay so remember, this was around a little after nine o'clock when Patty reported that Jacob called their party. By ten o'clock, the police are already on the scene of the abduction. So this all happened okay. in a very short period of time, wow. and the police response was very fast. Well, that's good. Yeah, and so the Stearns County Sheriff called in a state police helicopter to join the St. Joseph Volunteer Fire Department with the search. So this is such a small area that they only have a volunteer fire department. But they are bringing in extra resources from the state to, to, to help in the search for Jacob. And so by midnight, the FBI is actually already involved. Would that be normal for the FBI to get involved that quickly? I know it's normal in a child abduction case. They get involved right away. But I don't know when that started. Clearly, it started before 1989. Okay. But I do know that if they, if they have a report of a child abduction and they know it is an abduction, that's the thing. And if it's not just a missing child, but if they know there's a child abduction, they get involved right away. Well, I think maybe if there's, I mean, there was a gun clearly involved in this as well. So it's in the commission of kidnapping right. and the commission of a crime. So I'm sure that that triggered right. an extra level of scrutiny. Yeah. And this wasn't one of those where, you know, they're like, well, maybe he just ran away and he'll come back. They know from, you know, Trevor and Aaron that this was a, an abduction by a masked man. So... Local news reporters started arriving at the house around 11 a.m. the following day. Jesus, so this is out there. Vultures. They have, um, yeah, well, they have a lot of community support and that the neighbors were calling the radio stations and the news trying to get the news out there that Jacob had been abducted to, ha- to have people searching. Um, but again, that does bring media attention and they, start, they started showing up at the house around 11 a.m. the following day. Unfortunately, the case went cold at this point, and it would remain that way for the next 27 years. Why do you think that is? Well, we're going to get into that. So there's a lot of information that this APM report actually talks about. But before we talk about what went wrong, let's kind of talk about some of the leads that they were chasing. So in 2010, a music teacher named Daniel Rassier was named a person of interest. Daniel was 34 years old at the time, and he lived with his parents. So he was kind of an already peculiar guy because he was 35, he was well into adulthood living with his parents, and he was a music teacher in the local school district. And on October 22nd of 1989, Daniel was home alone. His parents were on vacation. And he saw a car flying up his family's driveway. So apparently the way that the the Brassier farm was set up, it sat quite a distance from the road. So you couldn't, if you were to turn on the driveway, it would look like maybe a 
small road. It wouldn't necessarily look like a driveway. You wouldn't know you were going to a house. So it wasn't uncommon for people to turn down his driveway, not realizing it was a driveway, and mm-hmm. then turn around. But usually they didn't go this fast as this car okay. was going. So this car was apparently flying. And he noted the car because of how fast it was going. And he later recalled that the car was going between 60 and 70 miles per hour. And that's flying on a driveway. Okay. And so later that same night, Daniel's dog, Smokey, started barking and alerted him to another car traveling up the driveway. And this was a smaller car than the one earlier in the day. And it was driving fast, but it wasn't driving as fast as the earlier car. And so, obviously, this struck Daniel as odd that two cars would be traveling that fast up his driveway only to turn around and go back the way they came, right? So, he didn't really think anything of it other than, hey, that's weird, and went to sleep, went back to bed. So, a little bit later, this is around 10.45 p.m., after Daniel had already gone to bed, he was again woken up by Smokey to see headlights moving near the family's large woodpile on their property. And given that this was now the third car of the day to come on their property, Daniel thought maybe they were thieves and they were stealing wood or something from his property. So he called 911. And the 911 dispatcher told Daniel that a child had been abducted in the area. So this was 1045 and they had the report of the abduction by 10 o'clock, if not a little bit earlier, right? Right. So when Daniel hears that there's been an abduction in the area, he goes outside to talk briefly with the sheriff deputy who was on his property. That was the car that was the last car that was driving up. He also reported that he saw around 10 police officers searching the area. And for some reason, it's not very clear, but he, it sounds like simply because he didn't invite them to search the remainder of his property, that the sheriff's department thought this was odd and so he kind of immediately became a, a person of interest that first night. Okay. So they really stuck on him, on Daniel Rassier. So he was treated alternately as a witness and a suspect for 27 years. His property was searched and items of interest were tested, but ultimately forensic testing was unable to link him to the abduction in any way. But he was still being treated as a suspect or at the very least a person of interest. That's got to be brutal. It's like your life is pretty much over at that point because I'm sure that in the court of public opinion, you're already judged and found guilty. Absolutely. And he reported that it did literally ruin his life. I believe he lost his job, if I'm not mistaken. I know that they went to his school and interviewed him in the principal's office right after. So they made a big public spectacle of the whole thing. And he worked at, in a school district, so presumably there's all kinds of rumors going around. And this is a small town. Right. You know? So, so it, I mean, he reported that it, that it ruined his life. And it wasn't until 2015 that another person of interest was publicly identified by authorities. And the FBI had interviewed a man named Danny Heinrich, or Heinrich, in December of 1989. So this was just two months after Jacob was abducted and they actually took a DNA sample but he was not charged with any crime and he was released and his DNA would later be matched to the January 1989 abduction and sexual assault of 12 year old Jared Shirel Shirel I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his last name and the only reason I'm mentioning his name at all is because he's come forward to talk about his assault so normally I wouldn't identify a minor in the scenario but he's come forward to talk about his his abduction and assault 
So his DNA was matched to this abduction and sexual assault, but the statute of limitations had already expired for this crime. So they couldn't charge him for this one, but they were able to actually secure a search warrant for Heinrich's house. Okay. And in his house, investigators found 19 three-ring binders uh, containing child pornography, handcuffs, duct tape, and four bins filled with boys' size athletic wear. How gross is that? It's... Like, appalling. It's disgusting. Yeah. So, investigators also found numerous videotapes of secretly recorded footage of neighborhood children delivering newspapers, riding bicycles, playing sports, and playing in the playground. So, apparently, he just had a camera set up in the area. It's not clear if he, like went to these places and, and videotaped them secretly or if he had a camera, a hidden camera set up somewhere. But he was basically... Also creepy. Yes. He was basically just filming little boys around the neighborhood for years. And so during the search, Heinrich admitted that he had the child pornography and says he downloaded it from the internet. And apparently it's at this time that he also confessed to the abduction and murder of Jacob Wetterling as well as the abduction and sexual assault of Jared Charles. So I, 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 out of all the things I read, I couldn't find anything to talk about why he confessed to the, the, the murders of Jacob and the sexual assault of Jared. There's not very much information on why all of a sudden it's my understanding that they caught him on these child pornography charges and were offering him a, a plea bargain deal that if he, uh, pled, guilty to the pornography charges which they had all the evidence for already and they knew he had all the other stuff that they would not be able to prosecute him as a death penalty case or life in prison for the crimes against Jacob Wetterling and the other young boy who he sexually assaulted so knowing that he was not going to be punished for that he was willing to give the information on it but only after they told him he was not going to be prosecuted as but they didn't have any any information linking him to Jacob's abduction. He was not linked to Jacob's abduction at all until he confessed, is my right. understanding. But I think he just wanted to get it off his chest. He knew he was going to be spending potentially the rest of his life in prison. And if they were offering him a deal to give closure to the family in exchange for giving the information without being prosecuted for it, wouldn't you do the same thing? Right, but I'm saying, like, it's it's out of nowhere that he confesses to this murder that they didn't have. I mean, maybe they would have kept investigating and linked him to, but there's no information out there that, that they had any idea he was involved at all. So it's like they found this child pornography, heard... and he was facing charges, and then he says, oh, also, I killed Jacob Wetterling. I heard that when they were questioning him that they kind of used that as a tool in their pocket, making him believe that they had information on that. Okay, which happens in police questioning frequently. It's one of the tools that they use. They lead the criminal to believe that they have more information that they do in hopes that they will spill the beans and talk yeah. all about the case. And this happened in this instance. He wasn't smart enough to see through the ruse and ended up giving the information up with very little prodding, it appears, on their end. Although, you know, it took a long time for him to get to the point where he did give the information up right we should we should talk about that someday because police can lie to you in an investigation or an interrogation it is legal for them to lie to you so right we we should talk about that but anyways it's a very tricky subject yeah so 
like you said, he accepted a plea agreement in which he pleaded guilty to a single charge of twenty-five of the twenty-five federal child pornography charges brought against him. And so just one of those charges. And in exchange, he led authorities to Jacob's remains and gave a detailed confession in court. Those that was part of his plea agreement. He had to lead them to the remains and give a detailed confession. That's got to be an extremely, extremely difficult thing for both the prosecutors and the family to deal with, not being able to prosecute him for this crime. My understanding is that the prosecutors went to the Wetterlings and they both agreed to the terms because this way they would be able to bring Jacob home and find out what happened. So... Right. I don't, and I'm sure they knew that once he got into prison, he was going to be somebody's little bitch. Anyway, he was probably going to be tortured because you know what happens to yeah. child rapists and that kind of thing. Yeah. They have a target on their back. So in his testimony, he claims he was driving on a dead end road in St. Joseph when he spotted Jacob, Trevor and Aaron riding their bikes. He stopped them and told the other boys to run home and not look back, which is in line with what Jacob and Aaron said, you know, as soon as they got back. And he then testified that he forced Jacob into the passenger seat of his car and handcuffed him. And he made Jacob duck down in the seat as he listened to a police scanner he had in his car discussing the abduction. Because by this time, Aaron and Trevor had made it to the Wetterling home and it was now on the police radio that there had been an abduction. Heinrich then drove Jacob to a gravel pit in the woods where he then molested him. And Jacob asked to go home, but when Heinrich told him he couldn't take him all the way home, Jacob began to cry. And Heinrich then testified that at this point he panicked and pulled out a revolver. I, I, I don't want to go into the details, but this is when Danny Heinrich shot Jacob Wetterling. Do you think that he intended to kill Jacob Wetterling all along? Or do you think that it was kind of a spur of the moment thing and he panicked and just lost his cool? I don't really ever tend to believe they panic and lose their cool. I kind of always think it was part of the plan, but at the same time, earlier that year, he did abduct and sexually assault another young boy and let him go. So I don't know if this was an escalation or if he truly did just panic, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but what is your gut feeling on it? My gut feeling, he didn't panic. my gut feeling is that he, he planned to kill him. What about escalated? Yeah. What about you? I don't think he initially set out to kill him. I thought that in the back of his mind, he had planned a scenario like this for a long period of time. And he had sort of considered all outcomes. Mm -hmm. And when this particular outcome happened the way it is, I think Jacob probably struggled and was trying to get away and was harder than he thought it was going to be with this boy. Mm -hmm. And I think he panicked and shot him. I think that he had the gun and he was prepared for it, but I don't necessarily think he was planning on killing him right away Okay. in the manner that he did. I think that that was something that happened. And I think he thought that he might have to kill, but I don't necessarily think it was a premeditated thing where he set out and said, okay, I'm going to rape him and then kill him. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. I don't know. Not that that's any better. Not that that's any better. I, I think it, all of it's equally as bad. Right. And there's no real way for us to ever know because, you know, he's not ever going to claim that this was part of his plan. Right. Like it's always going to sound right. better if this was not a premeditated thing. 
you know. And he's not going to trial, so right. it doesn't, uh, it's not like we're going to hear this. Right. Yeah, we'll never truly know unless he decides he wants to tell that story. So And have a book. Well. <laughs> a tell-all book, which would not be a surprise. Exactly. So... So Heinrich, he initially left the scene, but then he came back later that same night to bury the body. And he then testified that he returned about a year later. He returned to the crime scene because he, that's the, that's the other thing that kind of makes me think this was a planned thing because he returned to the crime scene. So he clearly got, he clearly got off on it. Do you know what I mean? That's definitely one of the things that a lot of killers do is after the crime mm-hmm. happens and goes down, they return to the scene sometimes multiple times over and over and over again because that is mm-hmm. sexually exciting. They want to relive the moment. They want to have that thrill that they initially had when they either raped or killed. And it's common, extremely common. Right. And, you know, I don't know if maybe that was just like a surprise reaction. He didn't know he's going to have that response and that's why he went back. Or if this means it was planned, you know, it's just, it's so hard to tell. I don't know. Right. But so he, he goes back a year later and at this point he could see that Jacob's jacket had begun to show through the dirt where he buried him. Right. So he moved Jacob's remains to a farm, not too far from where Heinrich lived at the time of the murder in Painesville, Minnesota. And this is about 30 miles from St. Joseph. So without Danny Heinrich's confession and showing them where the remains were, it's unlikely he would have been found. That's so scary. You know, 30 miles outside is that's 30 miles outside that area of the abduction is it's a very large search distance. It would have been you probably know? like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Exactly. So. As a result of this plea deal, like Sarah mentioned, he was Danny Heinrich was sentenced to the maximum 20 years in federal prison on the single child pornography charge. So that was the maximum sentence. Additionally, the plea, de- plea deal will allow state authorities to seek his civil commitment as a sexual predator at the end of his term. And this commitment could potentially prevent him from ever being released back into society. So while Hopefully. he won't be in prison, he will be committed as a danger to children around him. And I, you know, I, I think that that's absolutely appropriate. So, so he was taken into custody at what age? Mm, this was tw- 20 years after the crime. So he had to be in his 40s or 50s by that point. I want to say 50s, if not uh, not 60s, maybe mid 50s, early 60s. So he's in a 20 year sentence. So he'd probably be around 65, 70 years old before he gets out of prison. At least. Yeah. So if you know, if he was 50 or 60, it's possible he'll die in prison. Well, and hopefully he'll be getting more than his fair share of jailhouse justice. So at his sentencing, Judge Tunheim said we won't pretend that this crime and sentence is about child pornography it is also about changing the lives of so many children and parents who prayed for jacob's return and also feared you coming out of the dark every child knows the story of jacob wetterling you stole the innocence of children in small towns in the cities of minnesota and beyond and in September 2018, and this is so interesting, the Stearns County Sheriff Department held a press conference detailing the public accounting of how and why law enforcement failed to arrest Danny Heinrich sooner. And it's a 135-slide PowerPoint presentation. I didn't get to read all of it. I did give it the old college try and tried my, my hardest, but 
I have class and shit going on in my life, so and I didn't get all the way through let's it. Let's face it, it's not that exciting, but I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty dry, and like some of the things are like we'll link to it. There's you know it's a document cloud, and some of the things are like it's one slide that has like a quote or something on it, and you're like uh, maybe this didn't need a whole slide, but at the same time it's a presentation, so that's kind of what you want. But anyway, right. We digress. So in this this presentation, Sheriff Don. Gudmundson described multiple moments early in the investigation that pointed to Danny Heinrich as the prime suspect that were either ignored or overlooked. And this is where I'm going to go into this, this APM reports content. And, and, you know, I talked about their show and highly recommend everything. Um, every, everybody go listen to it. So we're not going to go over all of these because it is extensive, but we will link to this and you, you all can read it for yourself. So, Jacob was abducted on October 22nd, 1989. On October 24th, 1989, at 3.40 p.m., a local high school sophomore walks into Stearns County Sheriff's Office with his father and asks to meet with an investigator. The boy says that in the last two years, there have been roughly eight molestations in nearby Painesville, Minnesota, which is where Danny Heinrich lived and where Jacob's remains were found. He says that he saw two of the assaults and that someone grabbed the boys off their bikes and threatened them with a knife. The boy thinks the quick, military, and proficient style of the attack resembles what happened to Wetterling. Because by this point, it's in the news. What happened? Right. He suggests that investigators talk to Officer Bill Drager at the Painesville Police Department. Okay. Stearns County investigators don't pursue the lead until January 5th, 1990, nearly three months later. Oh, Jesus. And when they do, it leads straight to Danny Heinrich, who was a suspect in the Painesville cases. So it, two days later, they should have had this information. That's a major fuck up. Mm-hmm. And early January 1990, just a couple months later, the same day that Heinrich fails a polygraph test and is found to have car tires that resemble tracks left at the site of Waterling's abduction, investigators put him under surveillance. They begin at 8.19 p.m. that night, and within minutes, they see Heinrich get into his car and trail him. Heinrich leads the investigators on a series of twists and turns on roads outside of Painesville. 20 minutes later, Heinrich turns off his lights and shakes the investigators. Investigators trail Heinrich for parts of the next two days at his home, at local bars, and on dirt roads, and then appear to abandon the surveillance effort. So he clearly is using evasive maneuvers, and they decide, well, we're going to call this off. Hey, we're done. We're good. We're good. He hasn't done anything in the two days we're watching yeah, him. So even though he's shaken us and he's turned off his taillights. He's yeah, good. So we didn't see it. And I mean, it's literally like the child thing of, I can't see it. You're not there. So according to Gudmundson, Heinrich's driving tactics matched those used by the man who abducted and sexually assaulted 12-year-old Jared Sheryl. I, I wish I knew how to pronounce that name. Sheryl Sheryl in January 1989. This three-day period should have made... Investigators more suspicious of Heinrich, not less, the three-day period in which they were surveilling him. Gunmanson said, quote, His actions certainly should have set off alarm bells since an innocent man would be unlikely to take driving maneuvers to escape their surveillance team. You think? February 9, 1990, Stearns County detectives finally arrest Heinrich in connection with the kidnapping and molestation of Shire. He is drunk, according to a retired Stearns County detective who described the incident to Gunmanson. Gumminson says the FBI agents who interrogated Heinrich were inexperienced. Moreover, they didn't know he was a suspect in the Painesville assaults. Heinrich denied any connection to the crime and says he's being framed. 
FBI profilers who observe the interrogation don't seem to file a report, but to tell detectives they don't think Heinrich is guilty, so he's released. What the fuck? Like, if there was a, everything that could go wrong, like the perfect storm of bumbling police idiots, it happened in this case. It happened in this case. And this is the moment when Heinrich slips away from investigators for more than two decades. Heinrich is all but forgotten by June 1990. And there is no documentation of the interrogation that was located in the files released by the Stearns County Sheriff's Office. It's likely that records relating to this interrogation are in the FBI documents that were withheld. That's according to APM reports. Late 1991, Heinrich's name disappears from the Wetterling investigative file for more than 20 years. By 1991, the file indicates that the investigation slowed down. Of all the critical records from between 1989 and 2015 that the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension and the Stearns County Sheriff's Department made public when this was released in 2018, 71% of these records were generated in the first two years of the investigation. In 2010, the Stearns County Sheriff identified Dan Rassier as a person of interest in the crime. And now Rassier is suing the sheriff, the former sheriff, and the county for defamation. As he should. Yep. Shit. They bungled his stuff, too, just as much. And Gunmanson, the current sheriff, said that he asked retired Stearns County detectives why they didn't take another look at Heinrich. He said he never got a good answer. Quote, when you go through this file, you should have thought of it, Gunmanson said. When Heinrich comes, because the case is so big, they're so overwhelmed, it was like a whisper in the crowd. But you know what? It should have been a persistent whisper. So this is pretty much the last that they have on Danny Heinrich until 2015 when his DNA is matched to the abduction and sexual assault of Jared Sherrill. Sh- and that's it. That's when they get the, the, the search warrant. They find the child pornography. And that's when they are able to secure his confession to the murder of Jacob Wetterling. But had it not been for that DNA match... Who knows? Because they clearly, they were just assumed that, that this music teacher, Rassier, was involved, even though they had evidence pointing not only to the fact that it wasn't him, but they had evidence pointing to Heinrich, you know, two days after the, after the abduction, and they didn't do anything about it. Right. I find this case particularly interesting in this part of it as well, because it is very, very rare that a police department will do a mea culpa and say, hey, our bad. Yeah. And it seems like they did a major one in this case. And the reason for that primarily in most instances is that it opens you up to a barrage of lawsuits. And you can literally bankrupt the whole department with a couple, just one of those lawsuits. And I mean, obviously it's a very small town, so it is possible that they are going to be in some financial trouble. And I know that... Let me look this up because I know he did. I know Rassier sued and I'm did not. Did they settle? I'm not sure. That's what I was just looking up. Um, I know that his attorneys have requested to interview Danny Heinrich, but the, a judge ruled that he could not, they could not interview him as part of this lawsuit. Right. And that's the most recent update I have. That was January 9th, 2019. But he did, he is suing. He's still planning to sue. Um, I want to say he sued for $2 million. He's seeking at least $2 million in damages. He says the former sheriff retaliated against him for speaking critically about the investigation. I'm sure that it is winding its way through the court system even as we speak. Those sorts of cases sometimes take decades. Exactly. And so Patty, 
Wetterling, Jacob's mother, pretty much right after the abduction, became an advocate for children's safety, and she sits on the chair of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. This is just reading her Wikipedia page. Her advocacy particularly focuses on protecting children from abduction and abuse. In recent years, Patty Wetterling has become one of the most vocal critics of current sex offender registry laws, pointing to them as overly broad and unnecessarily causing tremendous harm to many. Her advocacy began after her son Jacob was abducted in 1989 and culminated in the passage of the federal Jacob Wetterling Crimes Against Children and Sexually Violent Offender Registration Act. So the thing, the interesting thing about this is that it, I don't believe Danny Heinrich was a, a convicted sex offender at the time. He was a suspect, but he wouldn't have fallen under one of these registries. Yeah, I don't know. So, so anyway, that's, that's the tragic story. That's kind of a very brief over, overview of the tragic story of Jacob Wetterling. And again, you know, we just kind of covered the, the highlights of it. But if you are interested, I do suggest you, you listen to that In the Dark podcast. And we will post our show notes. And if you're interested in reading the 135-page PowerPoint slide, because this is something that is, you know, we, I know you and I, Sarah, both, we talked about this, you know, we both knew about this abduction when we were growing up, you know? Yeah. So I have always myself been interested in child abduction and prevention of child abduction. I worked for a number of years for an organization called National Academy for Child Abduction Prevention Advocates. And it was an organization that was devoted to assisting people that were dealing with child kidnapping cases, working their way through the court system. Now, that was primarily dedicated to family-related kidnappings uh, by custodial Mm -hmm. parents or non-custodial parents. And it was very interesting. Was this in your capacity as a lawyer? Yes. Or was this I did consulting and attorney work for them. And it was a very, very interesting position. I did a lot of writing for them on prevention of child kidnapping, ways to show your kids how to prepare themselves and how to prevent it and how to be more aware and ready for instances that might might happen mm-hmm. with you or your child, where to go for sort of defense, self-defense classes, tricks you can learn if you're ever in the trunk of a car, things of that nature. I believe mm-hmm. that the website for that academy is still open and still running and live. It's stopchildkidnapping.com, and they have a lot of blog articles and information on there related to it, um, but also... An mm-hmm. organization that is extremely helpful and very, very powerful is the Polyklaus Foundation. And yeah, I kind of want to talk a little bit about child kidnapping facts because it's very, very interesting as well. 99.8% of the children who go missing do come home, they say. So that is a very mm-hmm. encouraging number. Nearly 90% of missing children have simply misunderstood directions or miscommunicated their plans, are lost, or have run away. And this is all from polyklaus.org. I think that is a comforting number, but at the same time, it's also a scary number because that does mean that a lot of kids go missing for some period of time. It might be a misunderstanding. It might not be nefarious. But when you have 99.8 that come home, and yet we have all of these stories of ones who don't come home. Right. That means that there are a lot, a lot of children that go missing. And that's terrifying. Right. 9% of children are kidnapped by a family member in a custody dispute. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty large portion as well. And 3%, only 3% of these these kids are abducted by non-family members. 
during and it's usually during the commission of a crime like robbery or sexual assault. And the kidnapper is usually someone the child knows or has had contact with. If it if it is a non-familial abduction, those are the highest risk of harm to the children. If it's a familial abduction, the child is most likely not going to be harmed, right. according to the statistics. Only about 100 children are kidnapped each year in the stereotypical stranger abductions that you hear about in the news. So, Like Jacob Wetterling. It's a fraction of 1%, which is like, hey, mm-hmm. it's only a tiny amount. But even 100 children seems like a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And about half of those 100 children do come home and the other half do not. So still frightening. I think even one, yeah. even one is scary to me. Absolutely. The other study that is often quoted by media and professionals in the missing child field is conducted by the Attorney General of Washington State. And this was a study that was done in 1997. The findings were that among abducted children who are murdered, in 74% of the cases, the victims were dead within three hours after abduction. I think you hear those sorts mm-hmm. of statistics all the time. Um, mm-hmm. And it says, what is... Which is why the FBI gets involved so quickly. Right. What is not generally reported is the fact that this statistic refers to a very small group of children abducted by violent or predatory kidnappers. This is approximately one in every 10,000 reports of a missing child. So it is rare, but still very frightening. So, yes, Mm -hmm. it's important to find the child quickly in the case of a kidnapping. But it is incorrect to assume that 74 percent of kidnapped children are at risk of being killed if not found within three hours. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? It does make sense. It doesn't make it less urgent. Right. Especially if it's, you know, your situation. But, it you know, statistically that, yeah. that If you're a parent, it's sense. fucking scary regardless. Right. I just want to add that, like you said, you're the organization that you previously worked for, um, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, their their Twitter account is just at NCMEC, N-C-M-E-C, and they post a lot of tools for especially navigating online with children because that is a very new medium in terms of predatory behavior against children. And so they do post a lot of information for both parents and children of how to behave online and things to look out for and things like that. So I would encourage everybody to go look at their information. And if you see a tweet from them about a missing kid, you know, retweet it. Pay it's attention. not hurting anybody. Right. Yeah. It doesn't hurt anybody to, to retweet those things and getting more eyes on, on those stories, you know, just increases the odds of, of those children coming home. I think it's also particularly important to note that this is an old case that we're talking about today that happened in the 80s, early 90s. They didn't really have the kind of technology that we have mm-hmm. now. And I think there is a very real, very dangerous threat from online predators that are getting to the kids through Snapchat and Kick and Instagram and social media accounts where they are posing as other young children and getting these young kids to meet them. Mm-hmm. in places which is very very terrifying mm-hmm. if you are a parent with a child be aware of that be knowledgeable don't be yeah. an ostrich putting your head in the sand know the passwords for your child's account and look at them regularly because you could save their life someday you may be think it's being an- nosy or invasive being <laughs> right, a helicopter parent it's be that nosy parent it. that drove me nuts when I was a kid because I wasn't doing anything wrong and I didn't ever have any dangerous interactions so it got on my nerves, but 
with you know AOL and Messenger, it could have very easily been gone wrong. So be that annoying parent. And these predators are getting sneakier and smarter and trickier, and they're doing everything in their power to lure your children away from you using any means they can. Mm-hmm. Don't start thinking, oh, you know, my child's perfectly safe because I'm looking at their Instagram account and everything looks good because children can have fake accounts to show their parents that they're not doing anything and then have another account, a dual account, that is for them to use when you are not looking at it. So know the passwords to your child's phone. Know the passwords to their computer. And it should not be a privacy thing. If they're doing things in your house, under your roof, that require privacy, then something's wrong. Uh, and, you know, neither of us are parents, so there's a, there's, a, there's a balance between protecting and not letting your child grow as a person. And I'm not a parent. I have a dog. She's two. That's about it. I don't even have any plants. So I don't know where that line is. That's something that everybody has to find for themselves. But... And I, you know, and I don't want to like freak everybody out, but I do think that there's just so many more ways for people to get hurt now. And it just, it freaks me out. Like I can't, it's just, that's why I don't have kids. Right. But I'm, I'm old school. I'm like, it is way better to be safe than sorry. Like be that helicopter parent. If you have to, if it saves their, their damn life, then it's, it's worth it. Right. Um, Let's talk about an email that we got this week. Do a little little email reading here. Yeah. We got an email from a young lady named Brooke who says, Hi, thanks for sharing Lauren's story. Now, just as a preface, we did a story on a young lady named Lauren Burke who was killed, abducted and killed. This was near and dear to, to Darcy's heart. Darcy, give him a little recap of that episode. Yeah, so I... I encourage you to listen to it, but in 2008, a woman, a, an Auburn freshman named Lauren Burke was kidnapped from her dorm and she was murdered. And this was one of the first cases that I really followed from start to finish kind of a thing. And they did arrest the, the killer and he is on death row in Alabama. And there's, there's interesting, you know, topics to discuss with his trial as well. So it's just a very interesting case. So I would encourage go you listen to, go to that back episode. And listen to it. Yeah. And I think we posted it about a month ago. Yeah. So it's three or four episodes before this one. Um, anyway, Brooke says, Thanks for sharing Lauren's story. I found your podcast because I often enter her name to see if anyone covers her case. She was murdered during my last semester at Auburn, but I was living in NYC for my internship. I remember a fellow intern asking, Hey, don't you go to Auburn? There was a girl murdered there. I was so shocked and scared for my friends. I would have been terrified if I was on campus at that time. The information about the judge changing Lockhart's sentence and Kay Ivy later changing the law was very interesting. I just wanted to reach out and say I enjoyed the episode. War Eagle, Brooke. War Eagle, Brooke. And that's actually kind of interesting that you say that because that's actually the same reason that I wanted to cover her case is because I also would search her name in podcasts to see if anybody was covering it. And I never came across one. So I thought, you know, we're doing this thing now. Why don't, and I went to Auburn. I wasn't there at the time, but I did have friends that were. So I thought, why don't we cover this? And we can talk about, especially with Sarah's legal background, we can talk about the trial and the judicial override of that. As well as the whole issue with the um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. 
Right. That was just was such an interesting veteran. So many things to unpack on that episode. It, yeah. There's a lot of great stuff in that case that the laws have been changed and people are really made some strong movement in that. Mm-hmm. So go, go listen to that episode. Thank you, Brooke. Shout out yeah. to Brooke. Thanks for the email. We love it, love it, love it. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for us, or if you'd like to uh, address one of the episodes that we have talked about on the show, please feel free to shoot us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We also always drop that into the show notes so that you have access to that. Our social media, Darcy? We are at the BFD Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So go give us a follow there. We'll also post some pictures and some information and stuff there too. We love interacting with our social media followers. We are we will definitely shoot you an email back or a text back or a DM back if you talk to us. We're more than happy to do that. We really like chatting it up with folks. Yeah. In the meantime, please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye. Bye.